You're listening to the podcast for Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Buy tickets to upcoming live events in San Francisco at InforumSF.org. Want even more Inforum? Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at InforumSF. Good evening. My name is Raja Guhatakurta. I'm a professor, astronomer, and department chair of astronomy and astrophysics at the University of California, Santa Cruz. Welcome to today's virtual program with Inforum at the Commonwealth Club. Tonight, I'm delighted to be in conversation with Dr. Chanda Prescott-Weinstein, Professor of Theoretical Physics and Women's Studies at the University of New Hampshire. One of the leading physicists of her generation, Dr. Chanda Prescott-Weinstein, is also one of fewer than 100 black American women to earn a PhD from a department of physics. We're here this evening to discuss her debut book, The Disordered Cosmos, A Journey into Dark Matter, Space-Time, and Dreams Deferred, which provides a deep perspective on the cosmos through the lens of feminism, a black Jewish identity, racial equity, and the idea that we all have a fundamental right to know more about our universe. Just a reminder that if you would like to ask a question, please ask it in the chat or comment section. We will try to get through as many questions as possible towards the end of this program. So let's get started. Hi, Dr. Prescott-Weinstein. Hi. Now, you are known in both the science community, uh, uh, but also for being a great writer. Can you talk to us a bit about the inception of your book and what inspired you to write it? Yeah, so I have to give credit to my agent, Jessica Pappen, for um, contacting me and saying, you've been doing a lot of writing on your blog, and it's reaching certain audiences in the sciences, but it's not reaching broader audiences. And, um, you know, have you thought about writing a book? And have you thought about just collecting these things into the book? And so actually, the original idea behind the book was that it was going to be a collection of things that I had been publishing online, maybe cleaned up a little bit. As I wrote the book, it became something completely different. So um, there was definitely a journey, even in the process of understanding what I thought the book was going to be, and then what I realized I needed the book to be and what I wanted the book to be. And, you know, I think the one comment I will make about being known for writing well is that when I graduated from college, when I started as a graduate student at UC Santa Cruz, I was a pretty bad writer. Um, my NSF graduate research fellowship application, my mom shredded it. And like the edits were, were way more brutal than I think anybody in college had ever given me. And so I would say writing is a hard fought skill for me. And it's just something that you work for. Something to enjoy all the more, right? If you haven't conquered those, uh, if you haven't climbed those mountains, you don't enjoy the view as much. So oh, that's fantastic. Now, um, you know, I'm, I'm amazed at this intersection. You, you know, your book to me, the prose, really is, is an art form. And so your book is very much at the intersection of science, identity, racial equity, art. And it's just amazing. This intersection is absolutely amazing. It's made me reflect on my own life and career and having to make a choice between art and science. I'm an astronomer today, but I'm living my plan B. My plan A was to be an artist. And I'd love to hear what it feels like to be at, at an intersection like this. Well, you know, the funny thing is, is that when I graduated from high school, my college counselor, who otherwise was an incredible mentor and supporter and definitely one of the reasons that I am where I am today, but she said, it's a really good thing that you want to be a physicist, Chanda, because you, you would never make it as a writer. <laughs> that was in, in reading my, my, my statement for the two essays that I submitted to Harvard for my application, like they were passable, but it wasn't going to scream, this is a, a writer who's, who's really going to make it in the world or ever get a book contract or anything like that. Um, but I'm a reader. And so as I was writing, I was really thinking about the structure of, of, of the book and of the sentences. And my goal was to have at least a couple of sentences in the book that I could look at that sentence and say, yeah, I really wrote that sentence. <laughs> and I think... I think about that particularly as someone who's like a really hardcore Jane Austen fan, that I think one of the things that doesn't get discussed enough is how careful Jane Austen was with the placement of words in her sentences. Um, people tend to think a lot about the plot and the characters that she developed, but she was really focused on craft and form. And 
so my goal was to have like a couple of sentences that I was like, okay, that wouldn't put Jane Austen to shame. Really just like a couple of sentences. So that was really how I thought about it. Um, and that meant I went through a lot of drafts of the book and um, I, I, I line edited the book myself. I had my computer read it to me and then I would pause it and I would edit sentences. So I listened to see how the book sounded. And, you know, in a lot of ways, I don't actually see this as being very distinct from the way that I do science and probably like the students, my postdoc and my research group would say, yes, she makes us write, do a lot of writing. But the thing is, is that as a scientist, we have to do a lot of writing. We write grant proposals, we're writing papers. Whether your paper gets citations, sure, is partly about the quality of the science, but people need to be able to understand the quality of the science. And some of that comes back to how well is it written at? Can an audience connect with it? And so I think in a lot of ways, I was just taking the storytelling that I think about in my science and bringing it into my writing. And I actually think that the storytelling work that I did in my writing has, um, I guess, as we would say in cosmology, back reacted onto my science. So I, I don't see that, that divide in the same way. And I think that's one of the nice things about writing in particular is that it just really pops up in almost all aspects of life. It's really wonderful to hear about this process. I had never, uh, you know, you hear about people practicing their talks by listening to, by forcing themselves to watch, you know, their own talks. And that's a painful process. But having, having a computer read your book to you, that's, that's wonderful. I hadn't, you know, uh, I, I know the audience would really, uh, you know, there are many closet writers in the audience and some actual writers too. And I'm sure they'd enjoy this, uh, you know, hearing about this process. You know, was the finished product, uh, you know, at the book as it came out, uh, what you originally intended over there, uh, were there changes along the way? Uh, can you talk a little bit about the book's structure, please? Yeah, so certainly in, in some sense, like if you if you zoom out, the table of contents for the book looks a lot like the table of contents for the the proposal that I submitted to publishers. Um, but it's also the case that as I wrote, I think one of the one of the the big changes was that I realized when I actually sat down to do the work that I really wanted to put science first. I wanted to put my scientific foot forward first. And so, you know, the first section of the book, just physics, the first phase of the book was not actually something that I had originally envisioned. And actually the four phases, the whole idea for structuring the book in four phases was something that came as, as I was working on it. And then I, I found myself rearranging the order of the chapters. Like I wrote I wrote the whole book and then realized actually, you know what, this chapter goes over here and this chapter goes over here. So things like that were happening at kind of a, a structural level of the or organization of the book. And then there were certain chapters that I picked at a lot. And the one that I'll point to is the physics of melanin. And I like pointing to this one because I thought that was actually gonna be the easiest chapter because it's based on an essay that I had already published in Bitch Magazine. And so I thought, I'm just going to take that one. I have permission to, to republish it. I'm going to expand it a little bit. I'll maybe touch it up a little bit, but it's been edited. It's been worked. And I will say that that was the chapter that right up until they were paginating and I wasn't allowed to make changes besides like a couple of words where I was counting the characters and making sure that I hadn't messed anything up. That was the chapter where I reorganized paragraphs. The opening changed every draft of the book. So... Um, if someone took like different drafts of the book, they would actually see a real dynamical evolution of a chapter. And I would say lots of the chapters went through that. I think the, the anti-patriarchy agender is another one that very dramatically evolved. But the physics of melanin, I struggled with it a lot. And, and it shows in the number of edits that it got. But, I, you know, it's, it makes a lot of sense to me when you say you started with the physics, you know. Uh, that may well have felt like your comfort zone, uh, starting with with that uh, topic, um, and um, no, that that's fascinating. And something, something, sometimes something you think is your comfort zone uh, helps you discover yourself, and you know, uh, and it's the discomfort that really that makes you grow as an artist, right? Grow as a writer. That's fantastic. I really. Uh, now you state beautifully in your first chapter, a very simple question on the backbone of your life's work is why. From an early, from a young age, you've asked questions like, why does the universe exist? You know, a, a young kid asked me the other day, what is the purpose of a star? And, you know, and 
why does the universe, and in turn, why does our world work the way uh, that it does? Also questions like, why are people racist? Why does my single mom experience sexism? Uh, in your opinion, what are the parallels between these two kinds of whys? How are they interconnected? Or how can or should these connections encourage us to make science more inclusive? Yeah. I think the thing that first comes to mind, actually, is a, a comment that a friend of mine made, made very casually to me over coffee one day. And I think that he didn't really think of anything of it. Um, and I have to, I'll, I'll name him and give him credit, Vijay Iyer, who is who's a, a jazz musician. We were just sitting and chit-chatting, having coffee one day. And we were talking about improvisation because I played jazz alto in high school and, and continue to be kind of I led my high school's jazz band and continue to be interested in improvisation as, as something that we, we do as, as a species, as people. And Vijay said, um, children have to be taught not to improvise. And so I think what's coming to mind here is really that children don't see a distinction between the different sets of whys. That organization of, you know, why did a, a bobby on a horse in London spit on my mother, which is something that happened. Um, for me, as, as like an eight-year-old, a seven-year-old, there isn't a distinction between that and asking like, you know, I didn't ask cool questions like, why do stars exist? That's like a pretty amazing question. Like, what is the purpose of a star is an amazing question. Um, but I think children are just trying to figure out why the world is the way that it is. And they're not organizing the data and the questions in disciplined ways because they have not been disciplined into that yet. And the disciplining, and I, I think disciplining, you know, here has academic meaning, but I think that it's an apt term in terms of disciplining children into these are questions that are okay to ask. These are questions that are not okay to ask. Um, this is relevant to science. This is not relevant to science. That's something that we teach children that this is something that doesn't belong. Even in you know, the way we organize standardized testing, that's actually one of the skills that we test is have you learned to organize objects together in a way that we find to be socially normative, right? So all along the way, we're teaching children that questions have to be organized in a certain way and you're not supposed to bring, put them in conversation with each other. But that's not, humans aren't born that way. We're taught that, we're teaching our children that organization. A great point, great point. Um, now, you have a poem at the end of this book that's dedicated to your mother. I'd love to hear about the relationship uh, she played in the writing of the, uh, of your writing of the book. Yeah, you know, the funny thing is, is that that chapter, the Dear Mama chapter at the very end of the book, my mom had no idea that that chapter existed until a week before I had to send in a response to the copy edits in October. And I sent it to her a week before and I said, you have one week to tell me that I should not include this in the book. Um, or if you have any edits to it or there's anything that you, you don't want in the book. And I'm... Um, so she, the entire thing was a complete surprise. And I have to say that that was one of my joys in writing the book was knowing that I was including this really big surprise for my mother. And um, I, I think, you know, growing up in a, in a low-income household with a single parent um, where I was basically completely dependent on my mom if I wanted to, like, leave the house, um, my neighborhood, um, you know, we had problems with gangs. My mom was also at various points being stalked by um, by violent people because of the political activism that she was doing. And so I wasn't really allowed to, to go out without her very often. And um, that meant, you know, surprising my mom was not a thing that I got to do as a kid. And we also didn't have the kind of money where I was like saving lots of money and buying my mom nice gifts. And so this was really my opportunity to thank my mom in a very big and in a very public way. And I also think that part of, part of that chapter was also expressing, um, was doing the work that I urge people to do in the book, which is to start thinking more expansively about what kind of work is required to do science. And to recognize my mom's you know, unwaged work as, as a single mother, as a caregiver, 
that had she not supported me in the ways that she did, I wouldn't be where I, where I am. And so in some sense, she had to be written into the book because the book doesn't exist. My career doesn't exist without her. And the, there was a really important form of, of recognition that, that had to be there. Um, but also, you know, just like the, the childish version of it is that like I got to surprise my mom and that was really fun. Oh, that's wonderful. You know, this is, uh, speaking of supportive mothers, I, I had a wonderful meeting with Jane Goodall a few years ago and she talked in very simple terms about how her mother had encouraged curiosity in uh, at times when other parents might have been mad or might have been irritated and scolded the kid for doing something out of the norm. Um, but uh, her mother questioned uh, or always uh, asked about what the motivating factors were for Jane to do something out of the norm. And, and she talks about that a lot, about the, that sort of how that, how important that was in her, um, in her uh, life. Now, you also mentioned Carl Sagan in several times in your book, especially his human-centered approach to science. Can you explain why his work resonates so much with you, please? Yeah, I, I think that, you know, Carl Sagan kind of looms larger than life when you're talking about science communication or even, I think, how the public understands what astronomy and physics are. I think you can really just point to a couple of different figures over the last 40 years, the last 50 years, who have had a really big impact um, globally, and I think that Carl Sagan fits in that category. And, you know, Carl Sagan's Cosmos, the book, was sustaining for me in college at moments where I wasn't sure if I could keep going in a department that I felt was unsupportive of me. And part of what was really powerful about Carl Sagan's approach to writing was his emphasis on wonder and his emphasis on constantly locating ourselves relative to the universe and actually saying it's okay to ask these big picture questions about what is our location in the universe what's happening out there um and 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 to apply our imaginations he was really interested in if there is extraterrestrial life what are the different forms that it can take and i think that had i not been exposed to that question through his writing i might have a very different attitude about about that that particular um, question that we're we're wondering about: Are we alone in the universe? Um, but that he approached it very scientifically, which is what is the biochemistry, etc. And I think, in some sense, he was ahead of his time. That you know, I think even when when I started graduate school, people were not having the same astrobiology question that question and conversation that we're now having. And I think, in a lot of ways, um, he prepped the public for, for that discussion, like a, a very serious science-based conversation about what life beyond Earth might be like. And, um, and I, I would say the other piece about that is that he never treated it as a separate set of questions from what our aspirations were for the relationships that we would have with each other as human beings. That was a very core thing, which is that he really argued that astronomy should bring us together, that the night sky should bring us together. And so I think in a very fundamental sense, my book is trying to carry that torch forward, but do it in a way that he couldn't have. As, as a white man who was able to be successful in Ivy League spaces as, as a professor during a certain time period when you know, when he was getting started as a professor, there wasn't even one black woman with a PhD in physics or astronomy. There wasn't a black woman who could have been doing what he was doing at that point because black women weren't allowed to. And so I think the thing that I can offer to the conversation is I can take that message and say, how does this look coming from this different perspective that he wasn't in a position to offer? You know, this is, this is beautiful, Chanda. So, um, you know, another picture, uh, person you figure uh, you touch upon in your a lot in your book is J. Robert Oppenheimer, the father of the atomic bomb, and his complicated life that is marred with regret uh, for what he created, but a life that remained intrinsically tied to the American military-industrial complex. And you know, importantly, you tie these two issues uh, within a larger framework uh, of you know his Jewish identity. Can you touch upon why his life is so important to you and your work and why do you find him so fascinating? 
you know, I think the interesting thing about J. Robert Oppenheimer is it's almost like a feedback loop because other people find him interesting. So he's been unpacked in a very particular way that I think makes him available to us to think with and think through. And so I think of him, you know, it's very easy to say, okay, well, he's just a warning of don't be like that guy. Don't end up in his situation. But I think it's very important to trace the steps that um, it's not that he had bad values per se. It's not that his family, he grew up in the ethical culture school, um, that he was actually surrounded by people who were thinking about these deep ethical questions. Uh, but he was also a, an interesting personality. There's this question of, did he try and poison his tutor at Cambridge? It's still not known whether he just told people he tried to tutor him with a, he tried to poison him with a, with an apple or whether the, the apple was really poisoned. Like luckily, no, it was not, it went untested, right? But his parents had to sail to England to sort it out um, oh. and, and take him to therapy. And so Part of what makes Oppenheimer interesting is that we know so much about him and he is a three-dimensional human figure to us in a way that um, like our historical boogeymen are, 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 boogeymen are, are usually not. And so, you know, you can say, well, he just shouldn't have done that atomic bomb thing. But I think that the interesting thing, question there is how does someone who just wants to do physics end up in that situation in the first place? And that's where it becomes interesting to me in a very personal way. Um, as someone who has similar Jewish values to the ones that he was raised with, and um, you know, as someone who has similar passions, like I'm even doing work right now that involves solving the Tolman Oppenheimer Volcker equations. Um, you know, how do I not accidentally walk in that direction? And importantly, now that I'm a professor, what are my responsibilities to my students in terms of providing them the guidance and support so that when they are confronted with difficult ethical questions, they know how to think them through um, and they have a sense of history and context for which um, they, they are having these conversations with themselves. And I think that that's something that we don't do particularly well in the physics and astronomy communities. We don't, generally speaking, equip our students to think about ethics, to think about not just, you know, maybe we have some conversations about plagiarism, maybe. I think we don't even always do that well. Um, but the ethics of interacting with other human beings and the fact that the work that we do can actually touch other people's lives for the worse, not always for the better. And um, Oppenheimer, I think, you know, the, the silver lining of his story is that we have his story to think with. That's very powerful. Um, you know, um, you're making me think about several regrets in this story in, in a way that you don't intend, I know. Um, but uh, I, one of the things I'll always regret is my first faculty position, my first faculty shortlist was visiting Cornell. And the thing I was most excited about was one-on-one -on -one time with Carl Sagan to, you know, as you go around the faculty and talk to individual faculty, but he was out of town that day. So this is great regret. So, so a few, few years later, I was at a AAS meeting at the American Astronomical Society meeting where I was in the audience when he was speaking. And the thing I was absolutely struck by for Carl Sagan was just his thinking on his feet. So, you know, this is the old days of a slide tray projector that he was, you know, he was, uh, someone else was operating the projector. They were going to be projecting his slides. He was going to be speaking. And, um, and there was some miscommunication. He was sort of shouting across to the person who was operating the slides and they weren't getting what he was asking. And at one point he just got frustrated and he said, is the problem the finite speed of sound? That, that's what he, <laughs> it was just, you know, <laughs> Everyone laughed, and of course, it was mean to the poor person who was moderate, who was managing the slides. But I, you know, he couldn't have prepared that line. I think that was, you know, just on the spur of the moment. Now, you've talked about great communicators, and um, you know, that was my mini intersection with him. But another great communicator of our times has been Neil deGrasse Tyson, and we were postdocs together at Princeton when Neil got his start at the at the Hayden Planetarium. Yes, so, uh, he's been an amazing ambassador for. Um, science communication astronomy, in particular, communicating astronomy to the public. Uh, we've talked about, you know, we've talked about your mother, Carl Sagan, Robert, Robert, J. Robert Oppenheimer. I'd love to chat about other individuals who've touched your life, 
um, you know, in in ways that are not not obvious from the book? Yeah, and you know, I think I encourage people to read the acknowledgement section because actually, I think in a Aside from the content of the book, the acknowledgments of the book was actually maybe the most stressful part for me. And I'm certain that that I left people out. Um, but I, I want to point in particular to the acknowledgement to my teachers from, from high school and middle school, and in particular, my math teachers, Frank Wilson and Warren Buckner, and also my history teacher, Randy Rutschman. Um, I am a product of the Los Angeles Unified School District. And, you know, LAUSD is usually in the news because there's a problem. And, you know, our schools were not as well resourced as they should have been. I was really lucky I went to magnet schools for, for grades one through 12. And so I had better access to resources than the typical LAUSD student. And even so, my classes were too big. I think Mr. Rutschman taught AP US history to a class of 45 students. I think Mr. Buckner taught um, my first year AP calculus class to a class of 40 or 45 students all in one room at, at the same time. And these teachers, I, 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 can't, I think I can't like uh, state too much the, the significance of the impact that they had on my life from um, when my mother got really sick when I was 12 and I was home alone and freaking out about it and my grades took a nosedive and Mr. Wilson called my mother and said, what's going on and how can I help you get through this? Um, which is going above and beyond. And I think that people don't really appreciate that public school teachers are constantly finding ways to do that. Of course, you know, there, there are racist teachers out there. There was one that was just in the news in, in California this week. Um, there are teachers who are imperfect, but um, there are so many teachers who are working really, really hard. And um, Mr. Wilson did that. Mr. Buckner at points when I was a 14-year-old getting distracted and not paying attention in calculus class, he called my mother and insisted that my mother um, give, give him my father's phone number and called my father too. Um, and said she needs to tutor people because I know she knows the material, but she's not applying herself. You have to let her stay after school. Um, at every stage, my college counselor, Elaine Berman, at every stage, they were trying to make sure I got to where I was going. And it really, um, I, I just want to point to my public school teachers in addition to my family, but um, I, I really think that we don't give public school teachers enough credit for what they do. And so I, I, I think for people who are very influential for me, when I think about what it means to be a good teacher now that I'm a professor, those are my models. When I think about good mentoring, those are my models. You're paying it forward, Chanda, and it really warms my heart. I'm sure it does yours too, as an educator, to think about you know what you're what you're paying forward, what you what you gain from them. That's that's really beautiful. Uh, I you know I was at a 40th school reunion recently, and I met up with my math and science teacher. I, you know I still explain logarithms to students the way he explained logarithms to me, and I was absolutely uh, it warmed my heart because my physics teacher recently was long retired. As you can imagine, looking at me, you can tell he's long retired. He actually took a, an online Python class I teach. This is, he's sitting in India 12 hours, you know, of time zone difference away. It really won my heart. And I, I think um, you're speaking as an educator when you give thanks to your teacher. It really is meaningful. Um, I'd love for you to discuss your relationship. Uh, you know, uh, sorry, uh, before we go there, can you discuss your views on ethics and how we as scientists should view the relationship between ethical issues and science. You've talked about it a little bit, how you don't want to separate those whys. You know, we artificially teach children to separate those whys. But I'd love to hear your views on, on ethics and how we as scientists should view uh, the relationship between ethical issues and scientific issues. Yeah, well, I think an issue that you and I are both very familiar with, the discussion in the astronomy community about the, the building of the 30-meter telescope on Mauna Kea, I'm, you know, there's a, there's a lot that I could say about that. And there's, as you know, a significant extensive discussion about this in the book. I think that, you know, one of the, the, the points that if people take nothing else away from, from our conversation today um, is a, a Kanaka Maoli, a native Hawaiian scientist, Katie Kamalala, talked 
about how astronomers need a code of conduct, a code of ethics. In astronomy, we tend to think about what we do as not having anything to do with people, even though actually our work is highly collaborative. And I say this as someone who also does work in women's and gender studies, that science is much more collaborative than the humanities is, because we are more likely to work in groups. We're more likely to be publishing with other people, whereas, you know, often in the humanities, people are, are working by themselves. The book only has your name on it, that kind of thing. I'm... If I was going to say that one challenge that we face in this conversation about the 30 meter telescope, regardless of what side we fall on, and I will say there are, I think there are more than two sides to the conversation, um, is that we have not been well equipped to have the conversation because there has never been a conversation about what is broadly our ethic of land use in astronomy, what is broadly our ethic of competing needs between a professional community and communities that are historically marginalized. There is simply, there are so many astronomers who I think tried to have, be part of the conversation that didn't have the vocabulary for it. So I will, I will just take that as a case study of how different would all of the things that have happened over the last six or seven years regarding the 30, 30 meter telescope been different. How different would that a con conversation have been? Um, and how different might have the conversation been 21 years ago when things were first getting set in stone? Um, so so I, I, I will take that as my case study of, as, an, as an example of why we really do need to understand that ethics is part of our work, that even if we don't think that ethics is part of our work, we are making ethical choices in relation to other people. And part of what can be very unfair about not having that ethical conversation is that we as scientists sometimes find ourselves on the wrong side of the picket line. Like, I didn't want to be here, someone might find themselves saying, but also I didn't even know I was on this side because we didn't have that conversation. Great point. I'd love to, um, uh, I'd love to speak with you offline, uh, of course, about, uh, you know, work that um, but I'm very interested in collaborations. I'm interested in, in um, you know, around Mauna Kea and Hawaii, but more generally around uh, revitalization of indigenous astronomy and how, you know, we um, who are in the Western structures of astronomy can, can play a role. I'm particularly inspired by something I've learned from Annette Lee, this notion of two-eyed seeing, where you look through one eye with, uh, and I'm, I'm quoting someone else, so, uh, so this is... Uh, uh, this is, uh, I've learned this from Annette. Annette has learned this from an elder. And this is really about looking through one eye with indigenous knowledge and indigenous wisdom, looking through another eye with Western knowledge and Western wisdom, but really looking through both eyes for the benefit of all. And um, so we do have a role. Um, and you're absolutely right. The con we're not equipped to have this conversation. Um, and I think the, f the first step is, uh, is getting there, getting to a place where we can have a meaningful, reasoned, informed conversation. Um, now, um, I'll, I'll keep going and going if you let me. So with the exception of Mae Jam Jameson, uh, there's few black women considered superstars in STEM. Uh, what do you think is the main thing holding back more diversity in the field? You know, it's a, I don't think that there is one, one thing. I mean, unless, like, I was just going to say, like, white supremacy. I think that that's, like, that's, you know, that's the complicated answer. And I think that, that that's also the true answer. And it's also the easy answer in some sense. It's a very short one. Um, we are living in the wake of slavery. We are living in the wake of colonialism. And that doesn't just touch Black women um, or Black people that touches anyone who is, is grappling with colonialism. And actually, you know, when just, you know, one of the, the first things when I started learning about science, technology, and society studies, which is kind of my, my secondary research field, one of the places I looked actually was at the history of science work that's being done in India, because in the Indian Academy, has remained independent enough of the West that there is a whole discourse that happens there that I didn't see happening in the United States. And so I was very interested in what were even, you know, the different understandings of the evolution of calculus and some of these other ideas 
that we're taught, we're taught, um, you know, these very like, uh, oversimplified, almost like fairy tale stories about where thing, where information came from and where ideas came from. And so I think that when we talk about why is there underrepresentation of certain groups, I mean, it's the same reason that I am, you know, people are debating how George Floyd died. Like, like that's, like, that's debatable at all. Like, did he really suffocate? Well, yeah, like a guy had his knee on his neck for eight minutes. He suffocated. Um, so I think in some sense, it's a very simple question with a, a simple answer. Um, the hard part is figuring out where the will is to do something about it. You know, the uh, colonialism you mentioned in India, the you know, history of math and physics there, my family was directly touched by much more recent events around colonialism. I, I probably have never spoken with you about this before. But at the age of 16, my father was uh, you know, put in prison as a political prisoner. He was a schoolboy taking a letter uh, about an unlawful gathering. And you know, it's true today, it was true back then, that uh, one person's freedom fighter is the other person's terrorist. And, um, and so I, my father spent 18, 18 months in prison being tortured you know, to within inches of his life. And um, a different kind of colonialism, right? Different kind. It wasn't about, you know, in this case, it was a battle to stay alive. It wasn't, uh, you know, it's difficult to think about your education when you're figuring out if you're going to get through the next day. Um, you know, in leg irons and so on as a 16-year-old. Um, now, thank you. Thank you for uh, bringing that up. Um, you know, um, you also write about Thomas Jefferson, you know, the pseudoscience of white supremacy and his hypocrisy around the issue. Can you discuss uh, it a bit for the audience, please? It'd be great. Yeah, you know, the funny thing about Thomas Jefferson, and, and I'll be honest and say that one of the reasons that I, I really wanted to make a point of including Thomas Jefferson is that, some years ago, I, I, t I tweeted something along the lines of Thomas Jefferson was a rapist. And, um, you know, this is, there's, there's a lively debate, I would say, in the historical community about what exactly his relationship with Sally was, with Sally Hemming was, mm. um, how much consent she was able to give, given that he owned her. Um, and, and I think that within, I should say within black women's studies, there's a debate about this. Um, particularly since technically in France, there was a moment when she actually could have walked away, but it also would have required never seeing her family again, probably. And so whether that's actually freedom or in itself a form of coercion, that escaping from slavery meant abandoning everyone you ever knew forever on the other side of an ocean, right? Um, so I tweeted this. And then the first big media profile of me came out in, in Huffington Post. This was in, in 2015. And there is an, a media organization called Campus Reform that likes to harass professors and encourage people to harass professors who say things that they don't like, and academics. At that point, I was a postdoc at MIT. And so Campus Reform decided to publish an article about that tweet and encourage people to send me hate mail and death threats and um, to write to the president of MIT demanding that I be fired from my um, named postdoctoral fellowship there. Um, so, you know, that's an, it, it was a form of intimidation. Campus reform continues to try and intimidate academics. That year, they were um, very clearly targeting Black women that, who were saying things about race and racism that they didn't like. So it was important to me to talk about Thomas Jefferson in more detail at length, uh, longer than a tweet, to really, you know, name the ways in which Thomas Jefferson was invested in white supremacy and benefiting from white supremacy. And, you know, he's, he's talked about in these terms as if he, you know, to children, I think, often hear about him as if he was some kind of like idol or God who, who could do no wrong. I'm, when at best I would say he was muddled, right? He, he, he was in love with a, a black woman who was his wife's half-sister half that he owned. And then he also owned his children. It's like a terrible soap opera at best, right? Um, and I say at best because like in reality, these were actual human beings who were involved, whose lives he was managing. So it, 
it was very important to me to really spell that out for people because I think, you know, people can be a little bit fragile about when you take their heroes. And I think that, you know, this is this is also the case in some of the conversations about sexual misconduct, et cetera, with Neil Tyson that have, have come up recently. Um, but, you know, just going back to the last question about underrepresentation, Black women face harassment and sexual assault and sexual misconduct. We face it from Black men in the field. And um, we also face it from white men. And that's a historical phenomenon. And that is part of the conversation about how we arrive at today. And so I think if we're like, I'm all for teaching American history, but then let's like tell the truth. Let's teach the whole story and not just the parts that make certain people comfortable. No, very good point. Very, very good point. Um, now, you've served on the executive committee of the NSPP, the National Society of Black Physicists. Can you tell us about the important work the society does, please? No? Yeah, so for a long time, I, I think 15 years, I was the chair of the Cosmology and Gravitation and Relativity Committee for the National Society of Black Physicists. And one of the reasons that I volunteered in that role for so long was because it, it, it I'm the cosmology and gravitation sessions at the conference are what convinced me to try my hand at, at cosmology. Um, and this is actually maybe a conversation that you and I have never had, but when I applied to UC Santa Cruz to, to the PhD program in astronomy, I was convinced I was gonna do exoplanets. I had written my junior thesis with Dimitar Sasolov at, at the Center for Astrophysics. And um, uh, you know, I was really excited about exoplanet atmospheres. It was a young, new field that seemed like it was going in interesting directions. And I think that was correct. Exoplanets has, has since turned into to this incredible field that, you know, back then, if you had told us that we would know about so many planets, I'm not sure. Well, I don't know. Certain people, the people behind Kepler certainly believed it, right? right. Um, but I went to the conference and I saw black people who did particle physics and cosmology for the first time. And I'm, I had been convinced by the, the, the white particle physicists I had come into contact with that I was not smart enough to be a particle theorist. There's certainly a hierarchy in physics and particle theory is at the top. I'm, the hierarchies in physics and astronomy are bizarre and totally wrong and need to be obliterated, but there is this hierarchy. And um, I went and talked to James Lindesay after a talk he gave. James is a professor at Howard University, a, a black physicist, and said, I really loved your talk. I'm taking general relativity right now. What should I do next? And instead of asking me about my grades or testing me or trying to figure out what my qualifications were, he just said, that's so exciting that you're interested. And the thing you have to do next is take quantum field theory. And that was it. <laughs> and I think that that moment captures what something like the National Society of Black Physicists can, can do, um, which is telling a student, you know, that others, the testing and checking whether you're smart enough is crap. If you want to do this, here's what you need to know. Go out and know it. That's a very different thing from saying, are you sure you can know it? You know, I hadn't remembered this, Chanda, that, uh, that I hadn't remembered your application to grad school. It was, uh, uh, you know, escaped my memory. But I, all I can say is exoplanets, the field of exoplanet science is lost, has been cosmology's gain, as, you know, as far as they've, they've lost due to an excellent other field. Uh, okay, so um, I know we're getting... Uh, close to the time when we'll start taking uh, audience questions. But in the book, you talk about how you didn't meet a black woman with a PhD in physics until you were almost done with college and didn't meet a black woman professor of physics at a major research institution until you were in graduate school. Uh, how did your experience shape your view of the importance of role models for underrepresented groups of people? Yeah, I think like the first thing to say is actually those two people were the same person, right? So this was Nadia Mason at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, um, who's now an incredibly distinguished researcher in condensed matter experiment. And she, she was also 
an undergraduate at Harvard, had gone to Stanford for her PhD, and came back to Harvard as a fellow of the Harvard Society of Fellows, uh, as a junior fellow, um, I think during my junior year or my, my senior year of college. And so someone in the department thought to tell me that she was around. And of course, I emailed her and said, can we meet? And um, it was after that, when she became a professor, that she was also the, the first Black woman that I, I met who was a professor at a, a, a Carnegie um, R1 research intensive university. Um, the reason, one of the reasons it's important to highlight that it was the same person is that the numbers are so small that like one person becomes that much more important. And I'm, you know, Nadia and I do such different research that it was many years before Nadia was really in a position, I think, to give me like hands-on advice about how to, how to, how to go about figuring things out for myself professionally. But since I have become a professor also at an R1 institution at the University of New Hampshire, Nadia has been, I think, my single most important mentor. And so I think one of the lessons there about role models is sometimes you're watching someone and you're saying, okay, those are footsteps that I want to follow in. And I was really lucky that I had at least one person like that. I didn't have a person like that in cosmology, in, in theoretical cosmology. And I was really lacking that. And so in a lot of ways, it was a very, a, a very lonely path. Um, but I think the thing I'll say about it is that 20 years later, she then became a very important mentor, even if she wasn't at every stage of that. And that, I think, really signals that people um, can become the right person to have those conversations with at, at different times. And one of the things that I learned from Nadia is that Nadia was actually paying attention to when that moment was. And when that moment was where she was like, here is a place I can make an impact, she reached out and said, okay, let's start having conversations. And so again, I think like my high school teachers, I'm learning from her, how do you do this? Um, we have finite time. How do you make decisions about who you devote time to? Um, and part of that is figuring out where can I have an optimal impact what is the moment when my help will be most helpful? And I'm, I, 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 I'm, I think I'm thriving fairly well in my position right now. I'm, I, I feel good. I think my dean and my department chair feel pretty good about how I'm doing right now. And a lot of that has to do with these conversations I've been having with Nadia, where I have a safe space to ask all the stupid questions that I might be afraid to ask someone else and where I don't feel like I have to explain my identity the way that I might have to to somebody else. You know, as you've, you know, it's so important that, you know, as you've pointed out, mentorship can be very complicated. It's not, sometimes a person can be a mentor without, you know, but just by being who they are. Um, and you, you know, you mentioned with someone you considered um, a mentor who told you you were not cut out for the field. You also refer to mentorship as emotional housework that is not considered scientific enough for the, in the field. And I, I, I you know, completely resonate with the idea that one thing we can do structurally as a field is do a better job of recognizing uh, the hard work that goes into mentorship, you know, how, how important it is, uh, you know, this mentorship is for students in STEM. Um, and, you, you know, you've done a wonderful job of describing the role mentorship played in your life and career overall. And, you know, and and I, I think, um, I, and we'll see in the in the audience questions. One of the one of the questions that I'll, I'll lead with, in fact, is how we can effectively mentor STEM students of color, and or students from other marginalized groups. But before we go to the audience questions, I'd like you to, um, you know, what do you hope readers will take away from your book? What is its resounding message? You know, that's my last question before I go to the, you know, the audience Q and A, please. And again, you know, what do you hope the readers will take away? from your book as a resounding message? Oh, it's hard to pick one thing, but I think, I hope that I've made the case for particle physics and cosmology as something that we should do as a peaceful human activity because it's part of who we are. I, I, I want, and, and I want everyone to understand that this type of storytelling is a shared human heritage that belongs to all of us, and that all of us really has to mean all of us and not the chosen few. Well, that's very well put, Amanda. 
Um, let's answer some audience um, uh, questions, please. Um, so, um, I'm just going to go in order. There are, um, um, the, the first question in the, in the chat from the audience is, how does the title of your book, uh, the, Dis the Disordered Cosmos, relate to entropy and the second law of thermodynamics? Oh, man. So I'm actually really excited about this question, partly because I was like, somebody's going to ask me about this, and I'm going to have to confess that actually um, it doesn't in, 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 in some, some basic sense. I, I feel like if I was going to point to a hole in the book, that that's actually the biggest hole, that I didn't write about statistical mechanics. And I'll explain why I didn't. Um, one of my two PhD advisors, Lee Smolin, really ground into me in graduate school that the, the key subject in physics was statistical mechanics. And as like a young graduate student, I was like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Statistical mechanics is important. Um, but I now find myself telling my students the same thing, that pretty much everything in physics comes back to statistical mechanics. And I was actually joking on Twitter about a month and a half ago that thermodynamics is magic and statistical me mechanics is real physics, um, which proved to be a controversial tweet, surprisingly. Um, I would at some point like to actually, in a very proper way, come back to I'm talking about statistical mechanics on my terms, but this, this book does not do that. The title of The Disordered Cosmos actually comes from the first peer-reviewed paper that I published with Lee, which was um, a way of explaining cosmic acceleration, or what is known as the dark energy problem, using um, non-local connections that appear in loop quantum gravity. So these non-local right. connections can be disordered. And so around the time that I published the paper, I started a blog called The Disordered Cosmos. And so that's actually my story with disorder, is that um, it comes out of quantum gravity and not out of statistical mechanics. Wow, I had no idea. I, I, I wondered that myself and I'm <laughs> gravitated towards that question. Uh, no, no pun intended. Uh, now, um, one, of the, one of the questions is the studies, studies show that physics and astronomy that the pipeline of physics and astronomy is leaky in that kids of color and girls lose confidence in STEM in middle school, college. Um, you know, there's attrition in college, there's difficulty getting tenure, there's pay gaps in the industry. What do you see as the most critical leaks to address uh, at what level or stage um, in, the, in the education process these leaks occur and what would be needed to bridge these gaps? Sorry, it's a very long question, but it's uh, it's related to the leaky pipeline and you know where where you see the biggest leaks are. Yeah, so I think the first thing I want to do is cite um, Dr. Corey Welch, who is um, a biologist who runs a, a program that supports STEM students at Iowa State University. He's also Northern Cheyenne, and. One of the things that Corey talks about, I actually just saw him give a talk about this last week, so it's fresh in my mind, um, is that the pipeline analogy has problems and that actually we really want to think about a watershed or an ecosystem. And um, so one thing I will say is that I think that we want to get away from, from that analogy, partly because we don't want to think about like shoving people into something. We want to think about a system um, where people's livelihoods are, are well supported. And I think that when you reframe the question as opposed to I'm trying to fit people in to a thing that already exists, as opposed to, you know, where is water needed? Where is fertilizer needed? Um, how, how can we grow the system into a, a good mutually supporting system? Then I think answers start to reveal themselves. Um, you know, a question I like to challenge people with is the problem with diversity and inclusion is what does it do for tenure rights? So it doesn't, when we talk about diversity and inclusion and improving diversity in STEM, it doesn't do anything for tenure rights. It does not save his life. It does not stop the, the police from shooting him. Um, so the, we have to go deeper than thinking about, you know, how do we salvage the people who are still in the pipeline to how do we create a system um, and, and a social environment and a societal structure where um, kids like that get to have childhoods, where kids like that live, 
in the first place, where Jacob Blake's children don't watch their father get shot in the back seven times. Um, and that sounds like, you know, I've gone really far off course, but those children are curious children too. And I'm thinking about the fact that I grew up with gang, with police chasing gang members through my backyard. Um, that I, those are not the right conditions for kids to wonder. And it's not because the gang members are necessarily bad people, but we have an economic system that um, creates underground economies, that forces people into underground economies, and those are pipelines. So actually the problem is we have these pipelines and we need to bust them open. So that's one comment I'll make about that. And I, just the last thing I wanna say is that Research shows that students from underrepresented minority groups come into college with high levels of interest in STEM majors. So there is something that science faculty at the introductory science level are not doing right and universities are not doing right that is chasing people off. We have a story where we like to blame K through 12 teachers. We love to blame public school teachers for everything in this country, including the fact that they'd like to get paid a living wage. Um, but university faculty need to do better because even when those students get there, they're banging on the door, they're saying we're here, um, they're not always welcomed with open arms and they really have to be welcomed with open arms. And so I just wanna to point to, to Corey's, I don't know the name of his program off the top of my head, but. I knew that his program at Iowa State looks like a very interesting model and um, is, is relatively cheap per student. I, I think he said something like $1,000 per student cost, which is actually like not a lot, relatively speaking. Um, so I think that that's the direction that I want to go in. I'd love to be connected to Corey. Uh, you know, I, I, and that's changed my life in the last two months that I've known her. I would love to. I can another life-changing experience for coming up for me. Um, there's actually a question for the two of us, Chanda. Um, a question for you both. How do you foster curiosity in your students? Do you have to help them unlearn the strict structures of what they think makes a good question, like you mentioned at the beginning of this conversation? You go first. Yeah, I'll say uh, I... I had a student in the very first class that I taught who was clearly very unhappy to be taught by someone who wasn't white. Um, and, you know, asked me if I even knew what I was doing in the middle of class during my third lecture, which, you know, for any professor wouldn't be fun, even if you're a seasoned professor, but your first week teaching on the job is, is, is pretty difficult. Um, one of the things that that student in particular struggled with, or one of the the many critiques he came to office hours with, um, was that I had a couple of times given them open-ended questions where I asked them to look at plots that where they entered parameters of stellar structure and just tell me what they saw. And he came in and said, this is a very bad question because it's not clear what the answer is supposed to be. And I said, yeah, this, it's not clear what the answer is supposed to be. Welcome to doing science. And so I think as often as possible, we need to start early. This was a class that was for junior or senior level undergraduates and introductory first year graduate students. As early as we can, we need to start teaching them that the answers in science are the ones that we figure out and there isn't a back of the textbook or a solution set with the answers. Um, that the universe doesn't provide a solution set. And so we have to learn to be comfortable with being uncomfortable and that science is about what we don't know. You know, I, I'm reminded of the words of Professor Jill Helms at Stanford. She says they don't call it search, they call it research, because you have to search and search and search till you find it. It's not about finding it the first time. Um, uh, I, um, what, I, what I think about when I'm mentoring my students is trying to create leaders and not followers, encouraging students to think about uh, you know, the work they've done, whatever analysis they've done, think about what it means. Um, um, I think uh, I'm very, uh, you know, I, I, I find myself telling my PhD students all the time that, you know, that I work for them. It's not the other way around. I work for them. They should tell me what I can do to help their journey. And I'm grateful that I'm being dragged along uh, in this journey, willingly being dragged along. And um, I think this leadership role in science that I know that um, um, 
you know, we've talked about in, in different guises during this conversation, uh, being the being being a leader, knowing that it's your path to follow. I really like what you said about the pipeline and really thinking outside that construct and encouraging people to find paths that are productive and uh, not limiting, not, not limiting ourselves to existing structures. Um, I have one more question on the chat that I'll ask you. I have no idea uh, about this, so uh, I've never heard of this before. So what are your thoughts on the block universe, B-L-O-C-K? Uh, the block universe theory, the idea that the past, present, and future are all occurring at once. Um, Thunder, I have not heard this before, so I apologize if this is also something you haven't heard of before. Yeah, I think that I, I can't say too much about that. Um, it sounds like um, you know a great question for someone like Matt Leifer at Chapman University who thinks about foundations of, of, of quantum mechanics. I'm... I guess maybe the thing that I'll say in response to that is that I'm always interested in ideas that um, are plausible. And the, the question for me always is, where is the data and how do we test it? Um, and and I, I'm a strong proponent of exploring ideas insofar as you know, they, they seem plausible. You know, there's a question um, about theory again, about Michio Kaku and on the hunt for a theory that explains everything or you know, the God equation. Um, and the question uh, that you're being asked, thank, I'm thankful I'm not being asked this question, is um, do you believe in, um, in such a universal, you know, that such an equation exists? I think it's completely reasonable to go looking for one. Um, so far, we've had a lot of success with unifying things. Uh, I spent, you know, I left the astronomy program at Santa Cruz because I wanted to pursue these questions of quantum gravity. And I spent a few years doing my PhD thinking about quantum gravity. So I think it's it's very plausible that something like that exists. I think math is an incredible language to tell stories about the universe. And we've been very successful with that so far. I also think that the universe doesn't care how we feel about things. And um, the universe doesn't exist to be understandable to us. We are not at the center of the universe. So I, I think I can also imagine the scenario where it turns out that the pieces don't quite fit together or we're not capable of making the pieces fit together, even if in some, I, I, I will confess to being a realist, in some objective sense, the answers are out there and we are just not the species to put them together. Um, but I also think that we haven't tried everything and we have created so many social problems for ourselves that we actually haven't given ourselves the time, the space time really, to sit and think about it because um, you know, we're, we're too busy um, plundering and warring. So hopefully we can stop that and spend more time trying to solve quantum gravity. I love your use of space time in these two contexts. So I, I wanted to um, say a big thank you to the audience for you know, your wonderful questions. Before we officially wrap, it's a tradition here to ask all our speakers the following question. What is your 60-second idea to change the world? I'd love to hear yours, Professor Prescott-Weinstein. Yeah, okay, so I had two answers to this question, but I'll, I'll link them. I want the audience to think about what changes would we need to make to our society so that every single child has easy access to a dark night sky and the opportunity to really sit with the dark night sky and wonder about it and wonder with it and wonder um, and, and think about their location in it. So what public transportation changes would we need to make? What kinds of changes to our healthcare and our housing and our food supply system and our social safety net and the way that we relate to each other would we need to have so that Black and Indigenous and Asian American and other children can sit and safely experience the night sky. Um, and I, I guess like maybe my five second thing is that um, public university should be free. And I, I think that we need to find the political will to make it happen. Yeah, yeah, that's fantastic. Thank you, Professor Chanda Prescott-Weinstein for joining me today at Inforum at the Commonwealth Club. 
Um, again, a special thanks to Marcus Bookstore in Oakland, California, and to Wonderfest for partnering on tonight's program. Uh, Dr. Prescott Weinstein's book, The Disordered Cosmos, can be purchased through your preferred bookseller. If you'd like more virtual programs or to support the Commonwealth Club's efforts in making virtual programming, please visit the Commonwealth. Please visit commonwealthclub.org slash online. And I'm Raja Gautakuta. Thank you and stay safe. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Support our podcast and find out about upcoming live events in San Francisco at inforumsf.org.